This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And this is the last episode of Season 3. We also welcome our eight-time celebrity guest scorer, my mother, Christine Duncan. Hello, everyone. Celebrity? Hardly. (laughs) I'm just saying that now because that's going to be one of my new jokes. Ah, Okay. You're world famous in Wisconsin Rapids. Yeah, exactly. Well, not even there. (laughs) All right. Before we get to tonight's movie, just a quick, I guess I'm going to just go on a small rant or tirade on my own. The Variety Greatest Movies of All Time list came out, and you know I love to eat these up because I love the debate of judging movies and what movies should be on what list and all the rest of that. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this show. But my issue is not necessarily with their list, although I have some qualms here or there with certain movies that either didn't make it or were just simply overlooked or one movie versus another movie from a certain director's history. But I think anybody can pick that apart. And that's the whole fun of it. My issue really, and I think this is part of the game that's not necessarily fun, and it takes me back to our discussion from the British Film Institute I guess, gold standard list from a couple of weeks ago, is that this movie yet again calls itself the greatest movies of all time list. And I don't think there's anything to say it has anything to do with greatness. They put together a list of 30 critics, writers, and editors from Variety, which they do mention it's a 117-year-old publication that's basically tracked Hollywood through all of its ebbs and flows since the origination of the industry, essentially, but they don't release what the criteria is for any of these movies, why they generated their list, or how this leads to anything other than saying it is the best movies of all time list. If you want to judge yourself as being the greatest movies of all time list, you have to have a measurable criteria, because greatest is not the same as best. And there are a lot of movies on here that I would say are among the best movies ever made, but are not necessarily among the greatest movies ever made. I don't know how a greatest movies of all time list does not include Star Wars, unless you're just not objectively basing this on what makes a great movie. Well, I I looked at the list too, and I don't know. I I mean, I, I question why certain films were included and others were excluded. You know, I mean, we don't have two of... Uh, the films that we, well, at least one of them we've rated, which is North by Northwest by Hitchcock. And one of my favorites, which I think is one of Hitchcock's best, Rear Window, yet Notorious, which I think is a great film, is on the list. And I have no idea why. It's not like they explained how they arrived at anything. They put a list of people together. We have no idea of why these people picked what they did or how. And what basis was. So this is just basically an opportunity for people to just yell and argue at each other without having any measurable ability to do it. Again, but it goes down to what the definition is of how you define greatness. 
I mean, we have clearly delineated in the course of this show what we think greatness is, and we score movies based on that greatness scale every week to objectively arrive at what we think is the greatest. I think some of the movies that are necessarily at the top of our greatness list aren't necessarily the best movies compared to some of the other ones we've judged. But based on our criteria and the way that we've looked at this and attempted, at least objectively, at least I have, I question some of your motivations and your scoring, which seems to change on almost a monthly basis. Gee, thanks. (laughs) But we're not doing this best on what is best. We're doing this based on what we objectively score as greatest. And I think that's why... I argue with them using that term so flippantly every time. The problem I have with this is, again, you you can just, anybody can create a list of the films that they think are, what are, in essence, their favorites. Because without an objective criteria, it's just basically an eye test. This is what I liked. I'm putting it and I'm ranking it based on what I personally like or enjoy. And without any criteria... You know, they're just averaging that out among, what was it, 30? Yes, 30 critics, writers, and editors. Yeah, and so you're just basically taking their subjective tastes and ranking them somehow, and which we don't even know that, and then compiling a list based on that. Okay, I'll just make this as simple as possible. If they called this the best movies of all time list, I'd have no problem with them at all. But... I think that putting the moniker of greatest makes it seem like this is somehow objective and that some of these movies should be canon. And I don't think a lot of the movies that are on this list are among the ones I would consider necessarily canon for greatness because of the context in which they were made, the impact that they had at their time, the legacy that they derive, or any of the other factors that we normally attribute to any one of the movies that we've scored over these Now 145 episodes. I know. And, you know, if we're just talking about the best or we're talking about our favorite, you know, that's completely different because that connotes a certain level of subjectivity. When you say greatest, it generally requires some sort of mechanism, some sort of formula by which you should be trying to assess them. So each film is considered on its own merits with the same criteria. Well... I don't want to estrange mom, and we probably belabored the point already. So let's move on to tonight's film. Mom, as you've come to be known, you're basically our rom-com expert for the show. And tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to When Harry Met Sally from 1989, which I think is at least up there with the best, not necessarily greatest, we'll come to figure that out as the show goes along, but best romantic comedies of all time. Directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, starring Meg Ryan, Billy Crystal, Bruno Kirby, and Carrie Fisher. The film was ranked number 60 on Bravo's 100 Funniest Movies. Entertainment Weekly named it as one of the top 10 romantic movies of all time, and the magazine also ranked it number 12 on their Funniest Movies of the Past 25 Years list. The periodical also ranked it 7th on their 25 Best romantic movies of the past 25 years list, and number three on their top 25 modern romances list. The film has inspired countless romantic comedies, and in addition, the film helped popularize many ideas about love that have become 
household concepts now, such as high maintenance and transitional person. So I think this movie is widely considered a classic, not just for the genre, but just overall. And it comes down to what I think the central premise of the movie is. Normally we ask what this movie is about, but I think in order to ask the initial question that's at the heart of this movie, we answer what this movie is really about. Can men and women actually be platonic friends? Yes, I think so. Is that with the addendum that if they're both in committed relationships, that this takes precedence over the original theory? Boy, I don't know how to address that necessarily. I Especially with me steering on. Well, no, but I guess I've never had a problem. I've always had men friends and... Yes, and... Even your men friends have asked you out. No, I had some in high school that never would have. Oh, well, okay, in high school. Yes, I was always friends with the guys. I found them less petty, I guess, so it was more fun to hang out with the guys than with most of my female classmates. So I've never had a problem talking to guys. I mean, I was friends with Feroz before he ever met Pam, and there was nothing there. So... Yeah, I think, I definitely think that men and women can be friends. But I think, I also understand the point that he's making because I think it can get blurred. Or if the opportunity presents itself, you know, where both of them become single at some point, that could, friendships make the best relationships. So I think it's complicated. So in other words, you're coming around to the standpoint of you just don't know. I don't know. I still have been friends. You know, I just, I don't know. I guess. Yes, but now you're part of the addendum the second time that they meet. Dad, what do you think? It's very difficult. Um, it can happen, but it's very rare. I think on a, on a percentage basis, men and women who become platonic friends is about no more than 10% of the time. And it's not necessarily the women. I think the women have a much easier time being platonic friends with the guys, the guys don't because part of what a guy wants in a woman is companionship. And that has an element of friendship to it. So when you become friends with a woman, if you find her at all attractive, and in fact, I think the more relationship and the more friendship and companionship you develop, you develop more of an attraction to her. I think it's much more difficult for a man to be platonic than it is for a woman. Now, the way that that differs is when you get to a point in your life where you're either in a satisfied relationship or you've reached a point where more than friendship is not necessary. Okay, and what I'm saying is is that sometimes men just reach a point where sex doesn't become as important and as a result, then they can more. But even there, I think guys have a tendency to their minds to wander to a place of a relationship more than a friendship. And with that, I would definitely agree. There have been on many occasions, and I'll just speak from personal experience, where I have been friends with somebody fairly innocently, platonically, but the longer I got to know them, I'll bring or introduce a theory from a TV show that I watched a lot about a decade ago, Uh, How I Met Your Mother, The Mermaid Clock. After a certain period of time, and the theory goes that 
no matter how you originally find the woman, there is a certain timer that goes off within the relationship where eventually you will find them attractive the longer you spend time with them. And it doesn't exactly reset itself. So even if you enter in with not necessarily finding them the most attractive, there have been a lot of relationships or friendships that I've had where all of a sudden you start to overlook some of your initial impressions and they become more attractive as time goes on. So even the, and I'm sure the quote will eventually come up, men can be friends with women they find unattractive. No, they pretty much want to nail them too does become true at a certain point in time, at least in my experience. <laughs> I, 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 what I, I honestly feel is, is that some women will enter into these relationships platonically and then are shocked when they realize that the guy has more in mind than what they did. And I think that's what this movie is really trying to drive the stake at, because no guy going into this movie would immediately say, oh, no, that's not true. But every woman seemingly has to have that moment where they, oh, I guess that is kind of true. They go into it with this naivete, whereas men can look at themselves honestly and basically say, yeah, men are all dogs. And eventually we're going to want some form of intimacy physically. Well, it's the old joke, which is men only think of two things, eating and sex. And if I'm not asking for a sandwich, you know what I'm thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> On that lovely note, (laughs) I guess the other thing about this movie that I would like to kind of discuss generally is that I think this movie in a way, despite being slightly derivative, I mean, it's it's borrowing from some tropes that had pre-existed from the genre, but I think it redefines what the romantic comedy was probably for the last 20 to 30 years. Did this really create the archetype of will they, won't they in movies and TV? Because the friendship that blossoms into more has become a staple from everything from friends to, I think, maybe like the, oddly enough, other Meg Ryan romantic comedies of the 90s to any type of Netflix series that has a romantic angle in it today. The only thing I would say is, contrary to what your statement is, is that we had this with between uh, Sam Malone and uh, Diane Chambers and Cheers dating a few years before this. But even there, they couldn't allow this tension to exist for very long before it had to end because they just couldn't figure the arc of the story lasting for more than part of a season until it culminated in an actual relationship. And then once it did, then they struggled on maintaining that relationship. Well, I guess then let's phrase it this way. Did this basically create the foundational pieces for everybody else to copy going forward? Well, it was successful. So they're going to, of course, take those good points of this particular film and apply it to other things because it was a recipe for success. I think it helped fuel it. I think some films... Some shows become points by which other things are drawn from. And there are shows and films that will realign how a genre moves forward for a number of years until it kind of the arc kind of plays out. I think this kind of established the formula for the sitcoms of the 90s 
into the early 20th or first century and until they, people got tired of the formula. I don't think that it's even really changed now, though. I really don't think the romantic comedy is all that different from 1989 to now. And I mean, really, what you're talking about is, is and your sister, my daughter, um, and her Hallmark movies, especially the Christmas movies, are nothing more than just holiday settings of cheesy knockoff rom-coms. And, you know, it's it's very formulaic. And I, I always said you could do a meal a deal where you could just draw cards and change the settings, the people, the protagonist, and it wouldn't matter. They're all the same. And I think that's, you could even say that to this day, that that's going back to the germination of this film. So, Mom, what is your relationship to this movie? I don't know if I have a relationship to this particular movie, other than the fact that I really enjoyed it the first time around when I saw it. And it's just so classic. I, I don't know how many times in since it's come out that I've watched this particular film, but I always find something new when I'm watching it, a new line that strikes me funny or something I missed the time before, or, oh, how come I didn't think that was amusing then and now it's become like a favorite scene or, you know, so I, I just think that it's a quintessential romantic comedy. It, yeah, set the stage for other romantic comedies that I've seen, but it's still, I think, one of the best. How about you, Dad? We saw this on VHS. It was probably one of those films that we watched while somebody was sleeping in his bassinet on the floor. Not too long into our marriage. My first time with this movie is actually quite memorable for me. I remember exactly the circumstance with which this came about. In high school, we had a psychology class, and there was a specific point in time where the social studies teacher in Port Edwards high school education decided to show this movie because this was his quintessential teaching tool of what romantic relationships should be based on because he used to, he had a VHS recording of the last speech, like the 30 seconds of Harry basically making up with Sally at the end of the movie at the New Year's party. And he would put this on and just have it slightly hanging out of the VCR every Valentine's Day so that his wife could pop it in and that was somehow his sign of affection. And so when we got to the psychology section of love and dating, this became the, I don't know if you would call it a Bible, but the playbook by which we started to craft everything. And I do remember instantly loving this movie and I've loved it ever since and I think I've probably watched it 20, maybe 30 times at this point because it's also one of the most easily enjoyable romantic comedies. It's a feel-good movie that you can put on at almost any point and not have a problem. This is clearly one of those that if you caught on cable, just about like any other Rob Reiner film, you would just stop and be able to pick it up immediately. And so this has been a movie that at least for the last, I would say maybe 15 years, it's just been around. If it's sitting on Netflix and I'm like not sure what else to watch, this is one I would put on very easily and not have a problem watching for the hour and a half that it takes to finish this film. It's just fun. And the lines that Billy Crystal have, he just delivers with such 
a plum, you know, and it just makes you laugh. And I think every time I watch this movie, it gets funnier. Well, and there are lines, and I've noticed this with a lot of comedies, when I start going through and trying to pick out stuff for quotes that I don't necessarily laugh at during the course of the movie, but just reading the dialogue is making me crack up in my seat. And I do point out that your comment about Rob Reiner's films is true. I've been running through a list of Rob Reiner films, and basically, you're right. Any Rob Reiner film, if you're just running through the the cable channel and any one of Rob Reiner's films came up, they're probably worth you just stopping and watching for 15 minutes, half an hour, or finishing the film. Okay, name for me any Rob Reiner film that isn't capable of doing that. And he only has maybe 10 films, I think, max to his name. But we've gone through Misery, A Few Good Men. We've gone through this movie now, Princess Bride. The American President. Spinal Tap, Stand By Me. And did he also do The Outsiders or was that Coppola? Oh, and then he did a biopic of LBJ a few years ago with Woody Harrelson that I thought was enjoyable too. Think of any of those and how many of them are like cable staples. Yeah. And you add this one to the list. I mean, this is genre defining. So let's give a little bit more background on the movie. Dad, do you have our plot summary ready for us? I do. Harry, Billy Crystal, and Sally, Meg Ryan, are two people moving to New York City. They meet by chance on a road trip and become friends. But as they grow older and their lives take different paths, they struggle to maintain a close relationship. Despite their differences, they both long for true love and happiness. As they negate, as they navigate the complexities of modern dating, they come to realize that they may have deeper feelings for each other. In the end, they must decide if they are willing to take a chance on a relationship or if they will always remain just friends. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Billy Crystal as Harry Burns, Meg Ryan as Sally Albright, Carrie Fisher as Marie, Bruno Kirby as Jess, Stephen Ford, Gerald Ford's son as Joe, Lisa Jane Persky as Alice, Michelle Nicastro as Amanda Reese, Kevin Rooney as Ira Stone, Ira, Harley Kozak as Helen Hilson, and Estelle Reiner as female customer. Recognition for this movie? When Harry Met Sally premiered on July 14, 1989. It went on to gross over $92 million despite going head-to-head with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Batman that summer, which were the two biggest movies of the year, and despite all of that, finish in 11th place for that year. The film received one Oscar nomination for original screenplay for Nora Ephron. The film is recognized by the American Film Institute in these lists. In 2000, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Laughs at number 23, In 2002, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Passions at number 25. In 2004, it was on AFI's 100 Years 100 Songs with It Had to Be You at number 60. In 2005, AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes with Customer saying, I'll have what she's having at number 33. And 2008, AFI's 10 Top 10 as the number 6 romantic comedy film of all time. Just this year in 2022, when Harry Met Sally was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Finally, when Harry Met Sally has a current 91% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 
a 76 score on Metacritic, and a 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Did you know? Before deciding on the title, when Harry Met Sally, screenwriter Nora Ephron, producer Andrew Scheinman, and director Rob Reiner considered Just Friends, Playing Melancholy Baby, Boy Meets Girl, Blue Moon, Words of Love, It Had to Be You, Harry, This is Sally, and How They Met. Did you know? When posed the film's central question, can men and women just be friends, Meg Ryan replied, yes, men and women can just be friends. I have a lot of platonic male friends, and sex doesn't get in the way. Billy Crystal, however, said, I'm a little more optimistic than Harry, but I think it is difficult. Men basically act like stray dogs in front of a supermarket. I do have platonic women friends, but not best, best, best friends. Did you know? The segments of married couples telling the stories of how they met are real stories that director Rob Reiner collected for the film. They then hired actors to relay these stories. Did you know? The orgasm scene was filmed in Katz's Deli, an actual restaurant on New York's East Houston Street, and the table at which the scene was filmed now has a plaque on it that reads, Where Harry Met Sally. Hope you have what she had. Did you know? According to writer Nora Ephron, the infamous I'll Have What She's Having line was actually suggested by Billy Crystal and credited Meg Ryan not only with the idea of faking an orgasm in the famous restaurant scene, but also with the idea of setting it in a restaurant in the first place. Did you know? The concept of Sally being a picky eater was based on the film screenwriter, Nora Ephron. Years after the movie came out, when Efron was on a plane and ordered something very precise, the stewardess looked at her and asked, Have you ever seen that movie, When Harry Met Sally? <laughs> uh. Did you know? For the scene in which Sally calls Marie and Harry, calls Jess at the same time, there were three separate sets. As Rob Reiner explains, we had three different sets, one where Bruno and Carrie were, a separate set where Billy was, and a third set where Meg was. It was all on the same soundstage. It's almost like doing a recording in a studio. The phones were all hooked up to each other because there are no cuts, if you notice. If somebody makes a mistake and it's a three to four page scene, you can't cover it. You can't cut away to anything. You have to do it over again. So how many times did they try to get it right? We shot it 61 times. If you remember at the end, they each hang up their phone, boom, 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 in rhythm. It took forever to get right. We did one, I think, 54 in, and we did it. They hung up the phones perfectly. Then Bruno blew his last line, so we had to start over again. <laughs> Did you know? The film is based on Rob Reiner's experiences post-divorce and as a single man. Coincidentally, Reiner met his current wife during the making of this film. Did you know? Nora Ephron supplied the structure of the film with much of the dialogue based on the real-life friendship between Rob Reiner and Billy Crystal. For example, in the scene where Sally and Harry appear on a split screen talking on the telephone while watching their respective television sets, channel surfing, was something that Crystal and Reiner did every night. And with that, we will take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are off for our normal holiday pause, but we will be back in two weeks for season four with our first tiebreaker episode of the show, where we will be deciding between... Dad's, I don't know, three of your favorite movies of all time? Your three most favorite movies of all time? No, they're, they're all three of those are on the list. I mean, I have a hard time. It's like trying to pick between my children. I probably have about ten films. These are three of them that are on my list. 
Well, then you apparently haven't asked your children because you clearly can pick between them. But anyway, Blazing Saddles, <laughs> Apollo 13, and Young Frankenstein, as to which of those is the greatest movie that are currently tied on our master list. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where they're all streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Mom, best performance. I think Meg Ryan. I think this was a coming out for Meg Ryan. I think it made her a sweetheart, so to say, of romantic comedies. I think it gave her her voice. And I just think that she did a wonderful job in this film. It's her first starring vehicle. And she really, I think up to this point, had only been known as the, I guess, doting wife from Top Gun of Goose. Other than that, she hadn't really been in much. And this is kind of the breakout role that all of a sudden she just becomes kind of a star. And this sets up the next probably 10, 15 years of her career. She's not my best performance. I have her ranked somewhere else. Best performance to me was Nora Ephron. This is the point where she makes the transition from being a magazine and and newspaper writer to being a film writer or screenwriter and getting into films where she ultimately ended up directing. And as a screenwriter, you commented in the did you know section, she was taking pieces from the director's real life, from suggestions from the actors and incorporating them in. She developed a style where it was not like, this is my script and my script alone. She was willing to bring in ideas from others. And as a result, I think it made it much stronger, a tighter script. And I think some, to some degree, she, by willing to compromise and incorporate different ideas and thoughts, showed that you could be a better screenwriter by allowing yourself to not be dictatorial in the, man, or in the management of the script itself. And so I think this really propelled her career and a series of films that she either wrote or directed over the next 10, 15 years. So I think it's a bit telling to me that the only nomination for this film was for original screenplay for Efron. I also had her as my best performance. I think the dialogue in this movie is just quintessential to the genre. Now, The one drawback I would have in nominating her is that I guess Billy Crystal added a lot of things to the original script as far as the comedic timing of things. And so I wonder how much of that effect goes into this. There were also several scenes like the Pictionary scene that were just completely ad-libbed by the actors. (laughs) You know, I mean, how much does that factor into the whole script development phase? Also, Rob Reiner seemed to have a very good talent of working with screenwriters and developing his scripts. And he worked with a lot of really great screenwriters that we've discussed already in developing his movies. So how much does that play into? Those are some of the concerns, but overall, I think part of the reason that I don't feel as bad or I don't feel those types of drawbacks as much though is, is that this became a fairly consistent thing for Efron in whichever movie she created. I mean, we talked about Sleepless in Seattle previously, and while that one isn't as much of a comedy, it it does have a lot of the same romantic language of this movie. And I think one of the few things that she got better than most people was the 
brutal honesty of relationships. A lot of this movie is broken down into the psychology of what a relationship was, even if people didn't necessarily have the terms to understand it. Much like you at times, Dad, this becomes somewhat of an explainer movie, but puts it in a more plain English type of view that's also entertaining. And I think that's the true talent of this film. It's taking a concept that a lot of people knew about, but didn't have a way of talking about and making it a bite-sized, easier way of understanding. Reason why it's his best performance for her in part is when you're a first-time screenwriter, you become territorial. You want to be dictatorial because you want to show that you know what you're doing. And she was willing to be collaborative throughout the entire process and was willing to check her ego at the door and allow others to have input when it was a better concept or idea than what she had. And I think that took a lot of strength and moxie to be willing to make those compromises, especially in this circumstance. Well, I don't want to paint everybody that isn't Nora Ephron, though, with such a wide brush either. I'm just saying that it's much more difficult for a first-time screenwriter to be willing to compromise their concept or their ideas, even if something is presented that may be better. But I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. I mean, there are plenty of screenwriters that are dictatorial about their work and very protective, like Aaron Sorkin. Correct. But how much does he allow his actors to alter stuff? Zero. Yeah, in this particular case, what I'm talking about is is she's allowing the actors to come up with ideas and concepts. She's allowing the influence of the director to change things. And I think that's one of the beauties of this and why she deserved best performance. So my best secondary then was Rob Reiner and along a lot of the same lines. I think that he has a very good way of establishing tone within all of these films, despite being in a lot of different genres. We already talked about Misery is kind of a thriller horror movie. You can talk about Stand By Me being kind of a coming-of-age movie or a friendship movie, and and Princess Bride is a fantasy movie. So all of these are operating in very different varieties of genre, and yet he seems to make them all very entertaining, rewatchable, and able to pick up at almost any moment. So I think he just had simply a talent that most other people didn't, and I wonder how much of that was developed by him being around his father, who had a penchant for directing TV. So I think a lot of these movies actually play out like long TV episodes and also his background in growing up in TV himself. Well, and you mentioned that, but I mean, he talks about this. I've seen in interviews where he thought it was nothing that, you know, on Saturday nights, your parents have all these people in who are like extremely funny and entertain and sing and dance and do this stuff because that's what they did. You know, they would have all these entertainers. I mean, they would have Mel Brooks in. They would have Sid Caesar stop by the house. They would have these people, and they would just entertain. And he saw the relaxed atmosphere by which these people were able to entertain and not to necessarily make it in a structured environment. He almost seemed to understand that sometimes the looseness of a circumstance or a situation makes it more entertaining, more comedic. And I think he brought some of that flavor into his films. 
Ma, who do you have as best secondary? I don't know that much about the directors. I don't know that much about the writers, but I do know, you know, the acting. And I picked Billy Crystal for this particular um, segment because of his his timing, his he's just so free and easy with his speech and his interaction with Meg Ryan and, and with the guy, the Bruno it's, he's fun to watch and it's just so smooth. And I just thought he did a really phenomenal job, but, but the interaction between he and Meg Ryan are wonderful in this film and, and the, the comedy that he brings forth or some of the lines that he puts in and just the timing are impeccable. I think one of the most significant contributions that he brought to this movie was not necessarily in the comedy. I think that's obvious for most of this. I mean, the the pecan pie, the singing Surrey with the fringe on top in front of Ira, any of those scenes you could obviously nominate. His offhanded remarks, I'm sure baby fish mouth is sweeping the nation. You know, the, the type of sarcastic stuff that you'd come to expect out of him. But what I think he really brings to this is that sense of foreboding and loneliness that becomes single men when they just don't know what to do with themselves. And it's one of the few things that humanizes this movie and makes him accessible in a way that I don't think his character would normally be structured. He makes that character seem appealing, even though I think, and we'll get to this later, there are some issues with how that character is actually written. Well, I have Billy Crystal as my secondary performance, too, and the reason primarily is because he had a way of presenting that character to represent something that every single guy, every guy who's either been through a breakup or has uh, has had a relationship that's failed or a relationship that never got off the ground, and you can act normal, you can live a normal life, you can do the normal things, you can hang out with your friends, but there's this emptiness you can sense a hole in him throughout the film that he's looking to fill and he fills it initially with the friendship because he doesn't have anything else to fill it with and i think every guy to some extent relates to him in this film and sees themselves in those situations well and i think that comes out when he's in that batting scene with bruno and he they're talking about this relationship and i had the quote up here before but he said you know i can tell her anything and he gets the perspective of the women's view and i think that brings this forward that that this men and and women friendship can be a thing. You get a different perspective. It's why you asked me to come on the show for the rom-coms, right? So you get a female's perspective on some things. And I think that friendship brought that other perspective where you started seeing things just a little bit differently. You don't get that if you're around men all day long. You made a woman meow? (laughs) Yes. So circling back to our original nominee, I had Meg Ryan for Most Charismatic. Despite all of her rather neurotic foibles, and she would be a very grating character, and I think there is something to the degree of uh, what he said. She is somebody who believes herself low-maintenance that's really high-maintenance. But even that is endearing. Well, just the way she orders her food... It's kind of crazy, and he, yes, finds that endearing in her. 
he kind of puts up with it. And I love the look between the waiter and him in one of the restaurants that they were ordering in it with her salad. He's like, yeah, I know, but what am I supposed to do about it? I want what I want. Yes. But I think there are two big important moments in this movie that make her seemingly a little bit extra charismatic. One, it's the naivete when Harry's originally delivering the men and women can't be friends and they just, men are always going to want to fuck the women. Or it's the, on the other end, and I'd say this not because of the acting job or the, you know, funny portion of the movie with the fake orgasm, but it's also that even despite her naivete on one end of it, she still has some things that she can teach Harry. And I think because the movie's balanced in that way, it also makes her seem on equal playing field or on an equal footing with somebody else. She's not necessarily always the person who's the student. She can also be the teacher. And I think that has a draw to it that maybe isn't pointed out as often. Mom, most charismatic? No, I have Billy Crystal. And again, it's I think just because he... Um, has such a way about him. He's not the best looking actor that there is, but he has got something that draws people to him and he's real. And yet he delivers all these one-liners that, you know, just have you rolling. And how did he come up with that? Or, you know, he probably says that in his everyday life and doesn't, nobody thinks about it, but here it's like written down in, in living color. So um, I just, I just think his delivery is so good with this. And, and like I said, he's kind of unassuming because he's not Mr. Good looking coming from this big comedian to just acting and acting normal. It's just wonderful. It just makes for a a good plus. My most charismatic is uh, Meg Ryan. I think for a period of several years, every man probably under 50 and maybe a lot older than 50 had a certain like crush on Meg Ryan after this film where they all were like, wow, she's like the ultimate relationship, the ultimate wife, the ultimate girlfriend. And why do you think that was? She just had a certain vulnerability, but yet it, it was a vulnerability at one side, but at other times she was not vulnerable. And it's that yin and yang that I think some guys really appreciate. There's naivete on certain things and other things she's able to control and and be independent. But it's the naivete where most guys just will chuckle. I wouldn't even say it's that. I think the thing, if I could put my finger on it, is... The non-judgmental portions of this, Harry's very open with her at a certain point in time, almost to the point of being rawly exposed at almost every juncture. He does not paint a rosy picture at all of himself, and he just allows probably whatever's popping into his head, thought or feeling, at any one time, and I think she makes reference to that during the course of the film, known to her because he feels he can be openly vulnerable. And because, yes, there are some judgments by her, but ultimately she becomes accepting of those. I think that is what men are looking for most, is a comfortable place to be vulnerable that they don't often get from women normally. It's kind of a yin and yang. Men want to be vulnerable, but yet they don't want to be vulnerable. 
I disagree with that. I think men always want to be vulnerable. They don't feel they can be. And so having that protective space where they can actually open up and be that vulnerable without getting the critical judgment that they often feel they would shudder at, I think becomes a sexy quality. I don't agree with that. I, I don't think men ever want to always be vulnerable. I think men selectively want to be vulnerable because it's so drilled into us from infancy that we can't be emotional. That We have to be stoic. That we're the protectors. We're the fighters. We're the, the hunters. We're the ones who are out there trying to protect our wives, our women, our families. And we can be vulnerable, but it has to be within context. And unfortunately, it's within a context that we establish. But you're proving my bigger point is that because men can't do that all the time, they're looking for safe places to actually be able to do that. And with somebody that is unassuming like that, I think that becomes an incredibly attractive quality about her that yes, there is an initial judgment. She ultimately though becomes accepting. And because of that, you can allow allow her to see the other parts of you that are much more broken or I guess dirty or creepy that you wouldn't necessarily be able to pitch to anybody else. You can allow her into your mind and to a certain degree, your soul. And as part of that, there becomes a level of intimacy Thus, I think the sexual nature that becomes teeming with during the middle portions of the film. She's not afraid to ask him blunt questions. You know, she said, you just get up and leave. And she's like, how can you, you know, just get up and leave? And so she, she not only asks the question to start with, but then she feels the female emotion and shows him that, hey, you know, this is the other side of that. This is how I would feel if somebody did that. And you know, and then and then they have the scene where they do sleep together and she wakes up and he's leaving. Because, and this is the part of the film that I never could have grasped because they never really addressed this. The reason men do that is because they now have to face their feelings and they are so uncomfortable addressing how they're feeling that they can't decide whether am I like have some sort of feeling beyond just the sexual aspect and if so i'm not sure how i feel or what i'm supposed to feel but i'm very uncomfortable feeling this so it's better if i just flee because then i don't have to continue to feel this it's a fight or flight aspect and that's why they're leaving and they never really talk about that but i think that's to a large extent what it is I mean, men are on the quest, as I have often said, to plant their flag on Mar- Mount Everest. Once they do, then if there's anything exhilaration that results from it, they're like, uh, now what do I do? I mean, uh, this isn't uh, what I necessarily bargained for. Uh, I'm just going to run off. I ask this for my own sake, but uh, where do you think Mount Everest is on a woman? <laughs> Let's skip that question. Move on. (laughs) Let's go to best scene then. I have kind of the opening road trip as my first one, which is probably about four smaller scenes, but kind of run together. It's probably the first 15 minutes of the movie. Then I have airport run in. 
Friendship in Bloom, which is also kind of a montage scene. It's where they start walking together in Central Park, and then you see several other cutscenes of conversations between the two of them and them bonding. And I think that kind of gets into the heart of the movie. Then I'll have what she's having, obviously a very famous scene. The Night Of, so that's referring to their, I guess, sexual encounter. The Four-Way Call, New Year's Eve party, so kind of the ending, and then the epilogue where they discuss the coconut cake. Now, I know I combined a few different scenes in there into some more montages, and I skipped big portions of the film, but are there any on there that you felt I missed? I personally believe all the couples discussing the relationships, even though they're interspersed, is actually one scene broken up. I think that that adds a significant portion to the film, and I would give that as a separate scene, each one of those individual pieces. I also have the scene where they're fixing the rug, and I think where they feel some uncomfortable things as they're talking about the date that went awry, and they're seeing that they can work together, you know, that their relationship is such that they can talk about just about anything and and work through difficulties and share with each other, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So I, there's something about that rug scene that is endearing to me. Um, the other thing is the batting scene where we were talking about the woman meowing. Um, it's just a funny scene where he asks them if, you know, if he just doesn't want to make himself happy and you made a woman meow. <laughs> But that's where he also says it's freeing to be friends with a woman and that he can say anything that he wants to. And I just think it's a good, it's his best male friend talking about his best female friend and how they're interacting. Just a follow-up question to that scene. Did she actually say the word meow or was she just purring? (laughs) I interpret that as being caterwauling. If you've ever heard a cat caterwaul. Not really. I haven't had a cat in 20 years. He says meow. That's something completely different. You know, meow. (laughs) I don't know. I've heard a lot of strange noises at night occasionally from my various roommates over the years, but uh, never quite that. (laughs) No meowing, huh? No, I've I've woken up to some, some different things, some name calling, expletives, God what seemed like the Catholic rosary, but never quite a meow. So out of these, what is the best scene? I had down the four-way call just because of the complicated nature of that, how well it's written, especially because it kind of takes away a lot of the exposition of the after effects and sets up what is the kind of crescendo of the film. But because it had to take 61 takes to get right, I think the execution between all parties involved, not only from a writing standpoint to a directorial to a production or set design, but then the execution by the actors, I think that one just from its complexity to me would be the best. For me, it's the drive scene because it sets up so much of the male-female dynamic. And I, I've been in a few situations like that. I had uh, I had to drive a friend's girlfriend back from some sort of a function. I remember having those conversations, and uh, I remember afterwards my friend said she was surprised because she had no idea you could actually talk normally. You weren't talking politics or 
some esoteric stuff, and so she was surprised that I could have a normal conversation. Because you use words like esoteric? Yes. <laughs> now, key important question. Mom, in all of your road trips with Dad, has he ever spit grapes and hit the window? No. <laughs> no. But there have been a few things on the road trips that have been, well, let's just say things we don't necessarily want to bring up. <laughs> this bringing up a certain scene from Parenthood? Uh, okay. No. No. <laughs> so let's just go on, please. <laughs> Somebody has suddenly got uncomfortable. <laughs> Seriously. Because she knows exactly what I'm talking yes, about. Yes, and people like listen to this show. Knock it off. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And mom's family even. <laughs> yeah, so just stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, we haven't gotten your best scene yet, Ma. Well, I think it's, you know, what everybody's favorite scene for this film is, and that's the, I'll have what she's having. You know, she just, she goes to prove a point and makes it believable and everybody's just, mouth is hanging open and then that line is, and I just, I just think that is just precious. It's just perfect. I have a curiosity question with that. Do you find that that scene is a little too long with the fake orgasm and a little too played up, or it's just right? No, I think it's probably a little longer than it needed to be. Yeah, I find that the more often I watch it, like the first time it's such a novelty, but the more times you go through it, you're like, do we have a fast forward button for about (laughs) the next minute and a half of her writhing in her chair? (laughs) I hope you're not speaking of that based upon experience oh no mine lasts a lot longer anyway (laughs) that's because usually there are multiples at the same time regardless favorite scenes Uh... i really like kind of the middle portion of the movie when it kind of gets really involved when it's this friendship in bloom and all the conversations they're having whether it be the rug scene or them just talking on the phone them discussing Casablanca, I think that's where this movie really works the best is all of the dialogue and the conversations between two friends. It it feels authentic and it feels like a camaraderie that frankly, I think most appeals to me in this movie just because I feel it's one of the few things in life that I'm really missing. It's one of the few things in a relationship that I really enjoyed was just simply having somebody to talk to that you could easily discuss just about anything under the sun and it didn't have to be important but it just felt like there was momentum and a camaraderie that you don't find necessarily out in the wild yeah it's a connection and um it's building that connection that that's so important the non-judgmental i mean there's a lot of things that could have been said that were you know really judgmental but None of that happened. And it was just there, there, you could just watch the bond growing, like you said. So I agree. I think, I think the, one of my favorite scenes is the Surrey with the fringe on top because she's a horrible singer and he never says anything. That's because he's distracted by Ira. I know, but I think, I mean, you could see that he was like, oh, maybe this was a really bad idea. And then suddenly she keeps singing and it's awful. And yeah, then his ex-wife walks up. 
but that's one of my favorite scenes is is him just completely ignoring the fact that she is horrible when she's singing and i don't know if she's that horrible of a singer or or she just sang off key and one of my other ones is the pictionary game so there's a lot of something else that we haven't talked about in this and that is the friendship that the four of those the, the the two couples have together too you know where that's her best friend and his best friend and then they end up getting together and the whole culmination of of the relationships end up in that wagon wheel scene <laughs> with the table with the horrible table as, <laughs> as he's walking out with this big don't say anything and just how in a relationship, you don't want to, especially when they're new, you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. So, oh, it's it's okay. Or, oh, you just want to smooth it over. You don't want to cause any waves. And yet, um, when somebody finally speaks the truth, then the shit hits the fan because it's the first time you can get slapped in the face and own everything I like my this other person doesn't like. And how are we going to resolve this issue? And he resolves it by taking the wagon wheel table you know out of the apartment essentially boiled down to when you start dating a woman you learn very quickly that all of your stuff is stupid <laughs> yes for instance somebody telling me you cannot play the who that loud <laughs> well that's because mom's been 45 since she was 13 is you have to play the who that loud it's required <laughs> I have the couples discussing the relationships that combine that whole series. I just love those because I think that is a microcosm of people's relationships. Whenever I'm talking to somebody, and especially somebody who's in a long-term relationship, whether it's marriage or an alternative relationship, one of the things I try to always ask them is, well, tell me, how'd you meet your wife? How'd you meet your husband? How'd you meet your girlfriend, boyfriend? I, hold on. I have no idea what scene you're discussing right now. It's all of the scenes where the couples are on there talking how they met. Okay. Because I thought you were referring to something completely different. No, because those scenes are the most natural and raw moments of the film. Because whenever you find somebody who's in a good relationship, if you just ask them that question, they will light up. And they will love to tell you the story of how they met this person or what they said or what they did or their first date. And I, I enjoy watching their reactions as much as I enjoy hearing the stories. And these stories, to me, were, the be were some of the best parts of the film. As far as most indelible, can we all just agree I'll have what she's having? Of course. It's the first thing anybody thinks about when they discuss this movie. Yes. Yeah, let's just gloss over that one. I mean, it's by far the most indelible. With that, we'll go to our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can still sign up for our newsletter at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast, or find our new Facebook page on our greatest movie of all time podcast. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Drew Griffin, 60, was an American broadcaster and investigative journalist. He's also an Emmy Award winner for journalism who covered the Uber sexual assault scandal in the early 2010s. 
he won his Emmy for his work on Trump University during the 2016 election cycle. He also looked into Mike Lindell and the big lie as of January 6th attacks or in the coverage after the fact. Jane Sherwin, 88, was a British actress who's best known for work on Doctor Who and Blake's Seven. After leaving her acting career, Sherwin also took on voluntary work for good causes. These included Amnesty International, Refugees, and the Homeless. And then we lost uh, Sonia Eddy, 55, American actress, long-time character actress, was in uh, everything from General Hospital, Felicity, Fresh Off the Boat, Pen15, Seinfeld, Murphy Brown, ER, Patch Adams, and Matchstick Men. A long, long list of different properties that you might have seen her in and a wide variety of different shows and movies. She has one of those faces that I think if you visit the website and you click on our link to her obituary, you might recognize her from something you've seen her in over the years because she was in a lot of different properties. And so I think she's the definition of, a oh, that lady. And so we honor these here for their contributions to entertainment and the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. And now for our most awkward weekly transition to best funniest lines. <laughs> yes. I'll take the most iconic one off the top right here. Older woman customer to waiter. I'll have what she's having. Harry, when I buy a new book, I read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark side. I have... I love that after I spend the day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. So you're going to skip the beginning portion and the end portion of that line. <laughs> well, because that's the part that I... You don't care for the... I came here tonight because you, when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. That's not important enough to include. I guess it is. I guess it is. It was, to me, that's like a separate quote. <laughs> but that's like the finishing kick. <laughs> well, I know where I stand. <laughs> what does that anything have to do with you? <laughs> Everything. When you're discussing this movie... And a romantic comedy has to do with your relationship. That's why I bring you on. <laughs> so that you can make fun of me the entire show. Yes, it becomes comedic fodder. <laughs> Harry, oh. the fact that you're not answering leads me to believe that you're either A, not at home, B, home but don't want to talk to me, or C, home, desperately want to talk to me but are trapped under something heavy. If it's either A or C, please call me back. Maria and the difficulty of being single. All I'm saying is that somewhere out there is the man you are supposed to marry. And if you don't get to him first, somebody else will. And you'll have to spend the rest of your life knowing that someone else is married to your husband. So I have one from Jess. Everybody, could I have your attention, please? I'd like to propose a toast to Harry and Sally. To Harry and Sally. If Marie or I had found either of them remotely attractive, we would not be here today. What a great friend. I know. <laughs> Jess, 
Marriages don't break up on account of infidelity. It's just a symptom that something else is wrong. Oh, really? Well, that something is fucking my wife. Jess reacting to Harry's latest sex story. You made a woman meow? Uh, I have a quote from Sally, but I'd like the pie heated and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Harry, you take someone to the airport. It's clearly the beginning of the relationship. That's why I've never taken anyone to the airport at the beginning of a relationship. Sally, why? Harry, Because eventually things move on and you don't take someone to the airport. And I never wanted anyone to say to me, how come you never take me to the airport anymore? Just to Marie. No one has ever quoted me back to me before. (laughs) Harry to Sally. There are two kinds of women, high maintenance and low maintenance. Harry, had my dream again where I'm making love and the Olympic judges are watching. I'd nail the compulsory, so this is it, the finals. I got a 9.8 from the Canadians, a perfect 10 from the Americans, and my mother, disguised as an East German judge, gave me a 5.6. Must have been the dismount. (laughs) Sally, after Harry declares his declaration of love. You see, that's just like you, Harry. You say things like that, and you make it possible for me to hate you. And I really hate you. Harry says, I've been doing a lot of thinking, and the thing is, I love you. Harry, right now everything is great. Everyone is happy. Everyone is in love, and that is wonderful. But you gotta know that sooner or later, you're gonna be screaming at each other about who's gonna get this dish. This $8 dish will cost you $1,000 in phone calls to the legal firm of, that's mine, this is yours. Please, Jess, Marie, do me a favor. For your own good, put your name in your books right now before they get mixed up and you won't know whose is whose. Because someday, believe it or not, you'll go 15 rounds over who's going to get this coffee table. This stupid wagon wheel Roy Rogers garage sale coffee table. I thought you liked it. I was being nice. (laughs) I'm out. Restaurants are to the peop- are to people in the 80s what theaters were to people in the 60s. I read that in a magazine. Sally, at least I got the apartment. Harry, that's what everyone says. But really, what's so hard about finding an apartment? What you do is look in the obituary section. You see who died, find out where they lived, and tip the doorman. What they could do is make it easier is combine the two. You know, Mr. Klein died yesterday, leaving behind a wife, two children, and a spacious three-bedroom apartment with a wood-burning fireplace. the next new year's eve if neither one of us is with anybody you got a date harry with whom did you have this great sex sally i'm not gonna tell you that fine don't tell me shell gordon shell sheldon no no you did not have great sex with sheldon i did too no you didn't a sheldon can do your income taxes if you need a root canal sheldon's your man but humpin' and pumpin' is not Sheldon's strong suit. It's the name. Do it to me, Sheldon. You're an animal, Sheldon. Ride me big, Sheldon. Doesn't work. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I should almost nominate Sheldon the Wonderschlong, though, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mom, you got any left? No. 
Okay, I got a couple here. Harry, I can say anything to her. Are you saying you can say things to her you can't say to me? No, it's just different. It's a whole different perspective. I get the woman's point of view on things. She tells me about the men she desires, and I can talk to her about the women that I see. You tell him her about other women? Yeah, like the other night, I made love to this woman. It was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Yeah, that's the point. I can say these things to her, and the great thing is, I don't have to lie because I'm not always thinking about how to get her into bed. I can just be myself. You made a woman meow? (laughs) All right, my uh, other one. Playing Pictionary. Jess, baby talk. That's not a saying. Harry Burns. Oh, but baby fish mouth is sweeping the nation. I hear them talking. (laughs) All right, that's it for me. Stanley Rubrick, then. Legacy is up first. Who wants to start? I guess I can. I have the industry. I think it has been an extremely well-done formula, although I think the origin of the formula has been lost a little bit because it's become so, so commonplace. I went with Legacy of being a four for that reason. For the public, I had to go with a four also because I think the public, a a lot of people know the film, know what the film is basically about, know the iconic scene, but may not have always watched it or have seen it more than once. They know about it. So it's a very popular and well-known film that's well-received, but not necessarily on everybody's list of favorites. So I went with an eight. Ma, are you ready or you want me to go? I also I have an eight and a half for a legacy um, because really outside of the dress and the hairstyles that are so related to the 1980s, it's just your classic rom-com. It's going to continue to be a good film. And like Tom, you said earlier, you can pick it up at any point and keep watching it. Or you could watch it over and over and not really get tired of the film. And so I just think that it's going to last. It's just a lasting film. So I think I'm going to be considerably higher than both of you on this movie for a couple of different things. So if we break it down into the industry versus the audience, we'll start with industry. I think I'd be very tempted if this was 2005 to say a complete five for the industry, given how many movies are created in the wake of this that borrow this formula. Kind of in the same way that Die Hard becomes kind of the action set piece, guy escaping insurmountable odds in a unique location, and he ends up saving the day. Kind of solo guy against the world type of atmosphere. It kind of replaces the John Wayne Western with the action movie of today. This becomes the set piece for a lot of the romantic comedies of the 90s and early 2000s. The only problem I see is, is that in the last 18 years, there just are not a lot of these films made anymore. And I think part of that is, is the declining nature of non-franchise movies. And for the small budget films that are being made, they're much more artsy and they don't necessarily go for the lowbrow romantic comedy unless, as you put it earlier, they're kind of these Christmas movies that are the cheap, cheesy formula that everybody loves. But you're not getting these types of movies in this genre right now. And so because of that, I have to go to a 4.5 for the uh, industry because it just doesn't quite have the same staying power when this was a staple of, there'd be probably one of these movies every month for about 20 years after this movie came out. 
whether it was Matthew McConaughey or Tom Hanks or whatever, there was some movie like this always coming out and there just isn't anymore. Even on Netflix, they're few and far between. From an audience standpoint, though, and I'll just make this slight caveat. If you were to say and walk up to anybody that I think is over the age of 25 and said, name me a romantic comedy, how many movies does it take before they get to this one, even if they've never seen it? I think this is at least one of those that's in the top five of just about anybody who knows romantic comedy. It just is so much of an iconic classic to the genre, and it's so much of a genre-redefining film that I think there are a lot of people, even though it's a little bit older at this point, being that it's, trying to do the math in my head here, but I think 34 years old, and these stars don't necessarily are not still in the cultural lexicon in the way they were probably even in the 90s. Meg Ryan has been out of movies for the most part for probably 20 years at this point. And Billy Crystal, if you know him from anything, it's either something to do with the Yankees showing up at Clipper games or hosting the Oscars more likely than maybe doing this movie. Or for some people of my generation, playing Mike Wazowski in Monsters, Inc. But other than that... I think some of that is faded, but I do think this is part of the audience consciousness in a way that most films from 1989 are not, because some of them have been remade or have fallen out of favor. And I think this actually has a higher legacy overall, particularly within its own genre, in a way that, like, the original Batman does not, even though it finished ahead of it at its time. So I ended up at a 9. So that'll be an 8.5 average between the three of us. Impact significance, I think from an industry standpoint, it's a five. This movie made a lot of money, even though it was 11th that year. It's one of the few before you kind of got into a gap that wasn't a 90 plus million dollar film that year. And for 1989 numbers, that's pretty big. I mean, it's not one of the tentpole franchises, the Indiana Jones or the Batmans of that year or a Ghostbusters 2, but this made a lot of money and made people aware that romantic comedies could be mined for more gold over the course of the next 15 to 20 years. And they were continuously on the back of this movie. So I think for not only launching the kind of modern romantic comedy genre, but also for creating stars out of Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, where Billy Crystal goes on to host the Oscars a bunch of times immediately following this in the next like 10 years, and Meg Ryan becomes the romantic comedy starlet. I think this is a five from the industry point of view. And I think from an audience perspective, it's not quite on the level of a Batman or, you know, certain other franchise IP of the time. So I can't give it a complete five, but I think a 4.5 is merited. So I ended up at a 9.5 there. Well, I have a six for for, um, impact and significance. I think it made it okay to talk about the relationships between men and women and the friendships that people have. And I think it made it okay to talk about sex in a real casual way from the scene in the, the restaurant to, you know, talking about how he leaves in the morning with his escapades and, you know, her with Sheldon, it made it okay to be a topic between friends and between men and women as friends. And so I I think that that's the significance. But yeah, I have a six. I guess I question why so low comparative to my higher score, given that 
what you're highlighting is, is that this became something that was at least a part of the culture, that these were certain conversations that stem because of the movie. To me, that says it had some level of sinking in among popular culture, and that doesn't happen with a movie that isn't impactful. Well, I suppose not, but I guess I'm looking at it. I don't know if it's if that's enough to create a huge, you know, wave. I think it gave people permission, and I don't know if that's overly significant. It it just that's the way it impacted it. So I guess that's why I scored it that way. Impact and significance. I think the industry it's mixed because it only got one Academy Award nomination. Yes, it did launch a formula, so I gave it higher points for that. So I went for the industry with a four for that duality. It was well-received, but not you know overwhelmingly received. And for the public, if you were to give it within the first year, it's a five. You give it four years, five years after the fact, it's about a two and a half. This is a film that had an, had an arc. When it was released, it was extremely popular, and then it kind of waned. And then as people look back and go, oh, yeah, I think it's gained popularity again. It, it wasn't something that was like everybody talked about a couple of years after the fact. People watched it and talked about it, but it wasn't as popular. It has gained more momentum as time has gone by having lived through this period of time there were and the reason I'm going to go with it as high as I am for that reason is because there were certain things that came about and became part of the lexicon the maintenance and whatever so I went with a four for that for an eight overall and this is the part of me constantly pointing to you being inconsistent that annoys me sometimes about your scoring is that you have done this with other films that are about the same period in time where you constantly say, well, if this movie was on cable and people constantly were watching it within those five-year period and this is filling up blockbuster rentals all the time because people are watching it at home and you have to consider these factors additionally, I don't know why you can't give it to this as well, which I think redefines an entire genre of film and creates probably about 20 other copycats immediately after it in the next five years. I only marked it down a certain amount. I mean, a very minimal amount. And the reason I have indicated is, is because even though this started the trend, this film specifically lost a certain gravitas that it later regained as people started kind of watching it again in circulation. It's just me. I lived through this period, and I tried to think back of how people reacted. I'm sorry, but I tried to be as consistent as I could overall. This did not have a continuous staying power. Well, that's a 7.83 average between the three of us. Novelty. Ma, how about you start out? I had this as a classic rom-com. Um, the novelty here again, just like the impact, it it made it okay to discuss casual or casually about sex. Um, but it also balances people being smart. People can be funny and they can still be romantic all at the same time. And I think that the 
meeting of the little couple stories and stuff were a novel idea. I don't think I've ever seen that in any other film. And I, I really think that that was, uh, gave a unique perspective to the relationship between Harry and Sally and the romances of these other little stories. It was kind of iconic and, and neat. And so um, I gave it an eight for novelty. So for me, I think that a lot of the topics that were discussed were pretty novel as far as sexuality, friendship, relationships, and a lot of the terms became more publicly well-known because they explained a common trope but didn't have necessarily a nickname or a title, and this put a name to that. But I think I'll make it even easier as far as what I think the novelty of the film is. Name me another romantic comedy previous to this about gradually falling in love with your best friend. I mean, there are several after the fact, but I just don't remember there being kind of this, what you would say is almost a common relationship. I mean, there's nothing really big or romantic or these two have this meet cute. I think every film up to this point had kind of a fantasy element of it. And let's say, for example, Roman Holiday is these two kind of meet in this unusual circumstance where she's escaping her royalty life and he finds her and then it became, becomes this kind of relationship based on that. Or it happened one night. Those are the staples by which things kind of came about is, is that a, a romantic relationship develops very quickly over the course of a couple of days. Whereas this seemingly takes place over the course of a year of them just constantly being friends. And then there's this sexual tension between them. So I just don't think that there are a lot of movies before this that were like this, but there are many movies after this that were much more comfortable about discussing a lot of topics that were a bit taboo necessarily up to that point, unless they were in much more adult films that weren't more commonplace, that were able to talk about relationships in kind of a very honest way. And because I think it was novel at the time of this, I think it makes this film a lot more classic and timeless because other than maybe some of the technology or the phone calls of the time or the answering machine messages that we clearly don't have anymore, a lot of the jokes still hold up because I think there's a honesty even amongst today's relationships that's still present in the movie. And I think that's why it still works for me. So I went with a nine. I went back and forth. I think this, I think the way that it presented was completely novel. The ultimate concept was not as novel. So I could not go with an extremely high number. So I went with an 8.5 for novelty simply because it's still a rom-com that had been around for 40 years, but it completely changed the dynamic of it and the methodology. So... I almost went with a nine. You're kind of almost persuading me towards a nine. I had an 8.5. I'll go with a nine also, based on your arguments, Tom. It's an 8.66 between the three of us. Classicness. I think most people feel this is a classic and easy to put on at almost any time, and that includes myself. I think this has a better feel for true relationships better than most other romantic movies there are. And I think that this has a timeless feel 
and somehow still seems to understand mixed gender relationships, all of that holds up extremely well for me to add points here, as well as the comedy. I think this is an extremely funny movie that's still funny, and maybe I'm a little bit subjective in that point because I saw this movie, you know, when it was still somewhat within its comedy window of being not outdated. However, I think that this film has some rough stretches with Harry that really only popped up for me in this last viewing as I kind of watched the movie a little bit differently for the show. His indifference to Sally's feelings when he has this casual sex and brings it up and seems to be able to openly discuss it seems a little short-sighted and a little harsh because I think he at some point has to realize that maybe not only does he have feelings, but she might also, and it seems a little careless. So I don't know how much that's going to jade my overall score on that, but I'm still a little divided on that part of what's going on. One of the other things I noted, I'm not really sure as she mentions it, he kind of accepts it after a while, but did he actually make a pass at her in the original road trip by just saying she was attractive? Yes. I see, would have I'm not sure I would, I would see it that way. I think he was trying to make an objective statement. But then again, I don't know how she would take it because, as everyone knows, I'm not a woman. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're a guy. And guidance never make any statement like that towards a woman with, I mean, at least it's a thinly limited pass. I mean, it's kind of like you comment about a woman because you never know. She may just go, oh, yeah. My problem with the classicness of this is one portion, which is that Harry is such a womanizer. I think that's my big issue with this, too, is he just seems, by 2022 standards, a little bit of a creep. Now, if it was not Billy Crystal and he wasn't funny and he wasn't very likable, that I think this character would seem a lot different and have a certain edge to it that I don't think was there when you originally watched it in 1989 or even like 2007 when I think I watched it. But it's starting to kind of set in that you know, maybe he's not the most wholesome character. And even, let's take it from this standpoint, why does she take him back? Why is she friends with this guy that she clearly doesn't think has a lot of moral standards that meet her values? Because that's almost every guy. Well, maybe I'm naive on that point too. (laughs) Yes, because being a guy in the 80s, I can tell you, There's nothing about his behavior that was not typical for a male at that time. I mean, we used to go out to a particular bar because the drinks uh, were relatively cheap and the girls were fairly drunk early. (laughs) Boy. Not that I necessarily was involved as much as other individuals who have... My wife has known through the years as my friends, but it, it it was what was going on in the 80s for guys. And I think the only thing that's changed is that guys are masking, really, their tendencies. I, I can't believe that things have changed that much where guys are at least not thinking about sex as much. 
Well, no, I don't think that part of it has changed. I think what our attitude towards sex is what has changed. I think there is much more sex positivity when it comes to either A, casual sex, or B, transactional sex than there was in 1989. I think that was a a development that has really especially come about in the last maybe 10, 15 years that's become more part of the popular culture. What I'm trying to say, though, is is not necessarily that men are dogs, which you go back to the 1930s with rom-coms and you can get that. But if I ran out on my best friend like she was a leper after breaking down the last wall between our friendship and having a relationship, I just don't know how you can ever come back from that. And that's what I think is least classic about this film is, is in the... 17-year-old me that watches this film for the first time and loves a happy ending, you really enjoy and appreciate the film. But on a rewatch, as you appreciate and get older, and through a 2022 lens, I just don't know if the ending is as truthful and honest as the rest of the film is. No. So ultimately, if bandying about all of my points up and down and such, because of the comedy, because of the timelessness, I think right now I'm going to go for an 8.5, even with all of its flaws that take it away from being probably pretty close to a perfect 10, maybe about 10 years ago. And I only think that as we kind of still deal with the, I don't know if you could call it a sexual upheaval that we're still in the middle of, if this thing will go up again, because it was a little bit ahead of the curve on some of this, or if it'll go further down in the next subsequent five to 10 years. Well, I'm going to give you my score, which is a nine. And I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to tell a story that I usually you, you always say I never tell anything new. But I remember while I was working for Blake College, which is where I went to school for the summer, I worked in the uh, maintenance department. I either painted or I did other projects. And one of the guys who was the foreman was a plumber and he took me aside one time because I had kind of a, my eye on this uh, girl that was working with us that summer. And he said, son, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. And this guy is a typical plumber. And he said, what you do is, is you bring them right to the edge where you make it clear that you want to have it. And then you pull back. And then they're going to be intrigued because why are you pulling back? And then you just kind of sit there and wait. And eventually they'll come around get on, or, and ask you. And then you never have to worry about being in a situation where you pushed the issue. Well, not only does that mirror a particular couple's actual story, but that actually might be fairly prophetic. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to remember his name and I'm like drawing a blank, but I can still picture him. And telling that story. Please give us your judgment behind your nine, then. Well, I, I think I've laid it out, which is that there's a certain aspect of this. Oh, boy. I thought I'd already kind of laid out my... You have given no justification for this yet. I, I agree with most of what you said, but I think it deserves a little bit higher marks because I think it reflects the times and... Even though I have problems with how Harry behaves and some of his standards, and I don't think it necessarily translates well into modern times per se, 
at least it's honest. And I think there's, I mean, it's hard for me to say because I'm well past that time where I'm out on the market looking. And so I don't know what's going on among young men at this time, but I can't believe it's that far off other than the fact that they're not quite as open and overt about it as Harry was. So that's why it's not a 10, but why is it above an 8.5 yet? What you've done is mirror all of the things that I've discussed up to this point, but you don't have the same score. I don't agree that it deserves quite the step down that you do because I don't see it as being a completely altered situation as much as you do. I think it still exists, but I don't think it's as open. I think guys keep their motivations more cloistered than you do. I think that it still exists and it's not something that's as acceptable In fact, actually, I would say it's the opposite. I don't think that it's quite as cloistered. I think it's a little bit more open. But because it's more open, we're a little bit more accepting of the transactional or, I guess, casual nature that sex plays in things as opposed to having actual meaningful relationships. Mom, what do you think? Well, I have a nine too, but I didn't even consider any of that. I think when I think classicness, I think you know, how does this movie hold up? I I think men are men, no matter when it was. I think if we ask the generation before us, they thought and about the same things there, there were, you know, relationships outside of marriage or casual things long before, you know, our parents and it just wasn't talked about. And I think Tom's right. I think this is, it's become more acceptable. So unfortunately, you're probably in an older generation, Dana, but I, th- I think people don't think a whole lot about it anymore. And um, so it doesn't deter from the classicness of the film. It's just actually talked about, but they only talk about it. They don't really show him with anybody. You know, the only time that comes back up is when he's trying to leave her room in the morning and she stops him. Right. And then he asks her to dinner. It also shows where he had some feeling about it that he hadn't had with anybody else. Normally just left, right? And then he said, you know, are you free for dinner? I'd like to take you for dinner. So you can see him swinging the other direction. And I think that's where she, like Tom was saying before, is acting as the teacher. He stopped to think about it. He made a conscious decision. I'm not going to just run off. I'm going to invite her to dinner later. Regardless, this movie is one to me that's classic because you can watch it over and over and over. And the situations between men and women have not changed that much. They're still talking. They're still, you know, doing all of these different things. And it's, it's a, um, I'm going to, I'm going to just say this, which is I'm almost to the point where in thinking it over and having this conversation and debate actually thinking about dropping it to an eight because I have always found it revulsive that men have treated women with such disrespect, which is what I exactly feel like if you're only in it for sex, that's so disrespectful of the woman. Now, it's one thing if she is equally in that position. It's Bob Seeger. She used me. I used her. So transactional. Yes. But 
I, I've been so revulsed for this for so long that I've had a hard time even contemplating, you know, being in certain situations and going, I just can't do that. I don't want to do that. I couldn't be like that. I think I would rather be at an eight than, than an 8.5. So it's either I stay with the nine for where I originally argued or I drop to an eight based upon my actual revulsion of how men generally were treating women then. And for that matter now. So are you at an eight or you're at you a nine? I don't know at this point. I, I guess I'll stay with my nine. All right. So that is an 8.66 average between the three of us. Rewatchability. This is not among the few, the proud, the elite of my favorites, but it's pretty damn close. I go with a 9.5. I think that the shortness, the fact that this is a fairly compact and you can pretty much pick this up at any point in the movie and not have a problem following it if you've seen it before, the fact that it's still pretty funny, it's all rewatchable to me. So 9.5 seems about right. I have a nine. It's just fun and funny. And like you said, you can pick it up at any point. I can watch it over and over again. I find more things funny or I find things that I missed previous time. And it's just an absolute pleasure. So for me, I can, my rewatchability is a nine. I went with a nine because this is a film that I'll sit and rewatch. It's not necessarily a film that I'm going to seek out. But if it's on or it's a uh, consensus within the group to rewatch, I will. Uh, it's something I will encourage. Or if on a short list, given three or four options, this will be one that I'll go to. So I can't give it a perfect 10, but I went with a 9 for that reason. All right. So that gives us a 9.17 for the category. For audience score, we had an 84% for Google users and an 89% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.65. So to recap the categories, we had an 8.5 for Legacy, a 7.83 for Impact Significance, an 8.66 for Novelty, an 8.66 for Classicness, a 9.17 for Rewatchability, and an 8.65 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 51.47. And placing it on our list, between Psycho and Apollo 13. Remaining questions for this one. I already asked one of mine, did Harry make a pass at Sally on the original road trip? You both seem to think so. I'm still hesitant to say yes. I don't think saying someone's attractive necessarily is a pass, per se. But maybe that's me trying to think the best of him yet. I don't know. And then, I guess, would you define Harry as a creep? in the modern sense, in a 2022 lens, obviously in a 1989 lens, probably not. But in a post-post-Me Too era, I think we are starting to move past a little bit of the harshness that was the reality of that early phase of Me Too. Is he a creep? I don't think so. I think we see him in the honest, raw sense. And to the outside world, he wouldn't be talking about those things necessarily. He didn't force himself on anyone. No, obviously, I think that puts him in a completely different category. I think creep is a little less than, like, that goes predator. into the assault. Yeah, predator is a good word for it. Yeah, no, I, I don't see him as that at all. And I don't think he's that much different than there are 
people who act out like that way. He just went through a really tough time with his wife. He was in love with her and she left him and he was trying to fill a void. I don't think that was necessarily absolutely all normal behavior. You know, when he found her, I don't think he's a creep. Do either of you have any remaining questions? No. No, I don't. All right. Final thoughts for the season. I don't have any. No, but I'm thankful that you guys asked me to come back and um and it was a uh, it was nice to be able to watch this film again for any particular reason and to join the two of you this evening. So thank you. Well, thank you for being on. I'm glad that you could uh, be with us. As promised, I will now give you my top 10 of both the TV shows and movies for the year. I know this has been a little bit longer than normal episode, but I will just try and run through these quickly. I ranked all of the TV shows I have watched that had seasons that came out this year. And of the 51 that I ranked, yes, I, that was a large number even from my eyes. Here are my top 10 on seasons of TV that we had this year. Number 10, I have the first season of How I Met Your Father. This is a bit of a nostalgia play for me because I loved the original series so much. And I thought that the new series had a good blend of the older series while also keeping some modern aesthetic to it that I I thought blended the two well together. Number nine, I have The Bear Season 1, which is on FX. And I just thought it was a really good use of character in a very good local setting for a show about food, mostly, which I think has become kind of very popular. This was kind of an underground hit among a lot of people uh, over the summer. Number eight, I have the spy thriller that I talked about a couple of weeks back in Slow Horses, season one. Season two is in the middle of it right now and probably will finish up before the end of 2022 here. That's on Apple TV+. Number seven, I have Hacks Season 2, just a very good, endearing show about stand-up comedy, but centering on a couple of very strong female characters. Number six, I have possibly the big breakout of the last couple of years for an HBO standard show, and something that's probably different from just about any other show on television right now, Euphoria Season 2. I think the musical montage, to me, is what really separates and makes this kind of a unique season of television. I'm sure for the younger audience that this is a huge show for them will understand what I have to say on that. For number five, I have Industry Season 2. It's just a really damn good show. They have some very well-drawn characters, and it's fun for me to pick this up every week and see what happens next, even though these people really can't get out of their own way and really should probably get out of the financial industry. Four, you know I love kind of a good rom-com, so I will go for the weird play and go with Bridgerton Season 2. I know Mom's looking at that one fondly. Number three on the list, I have The Offer, which is the story behind the making of The Godfather. That's on Paramount+. Plus. That was fun and enjoyable for me. Great charismatic lead in Miles Teller, who's had a big year as far as I'm concerned, I thought this was a really intriguing storyline for being somewhat historically based, and it's about one of my favorite movies in The Godfather. Number two, I have Tokyo Vice Season 1, directed by Michael Mann. It's a very good crime thriller drama television series, and while it ends on a lot of cliffhangers at the end of Season 1, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they kind of meet up in the middle on Season 2. 
going back to the first few images we got from season one. And finally, my number one show of the year, which has been my number one show of the year, and I don't think anything really could take its place in any sort of form just because of how this show struck me at the time, how well I thought it was crafted, how much I looked forward to each episode coming out, how well I thought the final episode of season one hit me at the time, it's Severance on Apple TV+. Plus. As far as movies, which I think everybody comes to this show for, number 10, I have She Said on my list. Number 9, I have The Banshees of Inishirin. Number 8, Tar. 7, The Fablemans. 6, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. 5, I have Top Gun Maverick. 4, The Batman. 3, Women Talking. 2, Glass Onion, which is coming out this week. Uh, It'll be out by the time this episode appears. And my number one, even though it is on mom's probably most hated list, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes, I did not enjoy that movie at all. Dad, what's your most anticipated movie of the new year to come? I guess I'm looking forward to Oppenheimer next year. That's the Christopher Nolan movie coming out in the middle of July. Some of the set pieces on that and the practical effects look extraordinary as Christopher Nolan is probably one of the best artists at setting up great practical set pieces. I think he and maybe Denis Villeneuve are probably two of the best. For me, I'm looking forward to Dune 2 that comes out next year, again, to highlight Denis Villeneuve. Uh, I'm looking forward to Oppenheimer. There are a lot of IP franchise pieces that I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to the new Mission Impossible. I'm looking forward to Shazam. There's obviously a few Marvel movies that will have some comments on as we go along, but those are just a few of the highlights of things that uh, we're looking forward to coming this next year. So thank you, everyone, for a successful Season 3. I know Dad tries to tease me every year on what will be my new finishing line for the next season, and I have not chosen it quite yet, but it's usually among the list of movies we will be covering I have already chosen our entire season four slate, and we have a lot of exciting guests and returning celebrity guest scorers coming back for you all, including mom. I think you're on the list for a few next year already. I think so. We look forward to seeing everyone in 2023. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we are off for our normal holiday pause, but we will be back in two weeks for season four with our first tiebreaker episode of the show, where we will be deciding between Blazing Saddles, Apollo 13, and Young Frankenstein as to which of these is the greatest movie. They are currently tied on our list. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where they're streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnyduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.